You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Max Tepkin, welcome to the show. Hello. It's nice to be welcome to the show. (laughs) So I was trying to figure out how to introduce you. So I went to your website, and the thing that you describe yourself as is a designer. And then in my notes, I have a lot of question marks next to different titles. And you tell me if any of them apply or don't. But graphic designer, game designer, entrepreneur, comedy writer, political activist, podcaster, internet troll, any of those like sound... Wait, did I call myself an, an entrepreneur at some point? No, I, think I don't think so. I think that's really obnoxious if I did. Yeah, I mean, I guess I... I technically am an, am an entrepreneur in the sense that like I have I have been party to the starting of companies, but it's always the starting of the company was always something that was done in like a last minute panic because if we didn't do it, it was it would destroy us. Does that make sense? Like when, <laughs> only f- for legal purposes are you uh, an entrepreneur? Exactly. Like for Cards Against Humanity, we never sat around and we're like, man, it would be so cool to start a small business. It would like you know and like incorporate. Like it was just something that we did eventually because if we didn't, our you know our our lives would be destroyed. <laughs> so people have definitely played one of your games or, or something you've been a part of, which is Cards Against Humanity. Secret Hitler is one of my favorite games. People may have heard your podcast, Do By Friday, which is more of a, a comedy slash, what else? Uh, podcast, politics, news. I don't know. Current events. It's pretty serious political commentary, I would say. And um, you also are part of Black Box, which is a project that um, I'd love to delve deeper into, which is a logistics and fulfillment company that was born out of everything you learned building Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. By the way, we just had Studio Neat on the show, and Tom mentioned that three of his favorite companies are Cards Against Humanity, Field Notes, and 37 Signals, which are all Chicago oh, yeah, baby. companies. And I'm just wondering, what is, it, what is it about Chicago that makes it so special? You've been there for your whole life, or... Yeah, I lived in I lived in Baltimore for a while, so I went to school in Baltimore and, and lived there for a few years, and then I, I wound up coming back to Chicago to work in politics. I mean, I, this could be a whole podcast in, in and of itself of why is Chicago the home to all these like cool companies and, and cool people, um, but I can give you just, I mean, I don't have a, there's no one answer, but I can give you a couple of different sort of factors that I think play into it. Um, number one is, I think a lot of cities have some sort of infrastructure that everyone kind of congeals around that is like the center of all of the kind of thinking and ideas around, around, you know, business and success and stuff like that. So like LA to use LA as an example, like it's obviously kind of built around the entertainment industry and a lot of the startup stuff in LA kind of is like, you know, it has to do with like content creators and, you know, media startups and things like that. You know, San Francisco, you've obviously got software in Silicon Valley. New York is kind of finance-based. Chicago is, is I, I couldn't tell you. It's what? It's like it's like the hog butcher to the world. I mean, it's <laughs> like, I mean, and honestly, like making like refrigerated rail cars. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, we, we have like the mercantile exchange, I guess. But like, there's just no infrastructure here. Like, there, you're not judged on like, oh, are you part of the real industry of the city or not? I think what's valued in Chicago is just like, hard work and being humble and being nice to people. Um, I think that it's just like culturally not automatically cool to have like a, like a, like a huge company and like a big office and all of that. Like it's equally cool to just, you know, go to work every day and make something that people use. So I don't know. There's just something, all those little cultural factors, there's just something in the, in the air here. If people make these, these like 
sustainable, you know, well-sized, high-integrity companies with like a like a strong idea behind them. I think what people like about those three companies and yours included is that you're playing by your own rules, I guess, would be like the way that people would describe it. You sometimes are defining those rules as you go. Obviously, 37 Signals and Basecamp have written a bunch of books about the way that they do business. Kudal uh, Partners and, and everything they've been doing with Field Notes has its own sort of media empire attached to it. I don't know exactly how you would describe your relationship to that, but Cards Against Humanity in itself, just the game itself, has always been from the beginning as a Kickstarter project, has always gone a different path. And is that because there's no examples that everyone's trying to copy in Chicago? Or is there something that makes you want to create your own rules about doing business? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly flattered by the comparison. I mean, you know, I think it's no, it's not necessarily like a coincidence, like, you know, that Cards is sort of in that mold. Um, You know, it's important. First of all, I just want to say as a caveat, like there's eight people who created Cards Against Humanity. We all own the company equally. We make decisions by consensus. So I am only one eighth of the story of cards. And my job for cards is to do a lot of our like public communications and like write our press releases and stuff like that. So like I tend to get the most sort of public credit for it, but I try, and I'm not saying this because so I sound like humble and cool, but I truly have only one eighth of the, uh, of the, you know, the ideas and the, the knowledge that makes cards work. And like, I'm often outvoted and it's for my own good by the other partners or, or talked out of doing some bad idea or something like that. So like, I don't want to say these things like I'm taking too much credit for what happens at cards, but you know, it's not totally a coincidence. Like I read uh, Dave and Jason's books, like rework made it, it made a huge impression on me, you know, as cards was starting to become like a real business. And, you know, I followed Kudal partners for almost my entire professional life. And shortly after Kudal part, you know, Jim had shut down the sort of client services stuff that they were doing and started to pivot into um, the deck and um, field notes and all of these projects. I went and saw the first creative mornings talk ever in Chicago was, was Jim Kudal talking about like what he was doing with uh, Kudal partners. So you can go watch it online. It's still an incredible talk. If you, if you look up creative mornings, Jim Kudal, and that was just an absolutely formative moment for me and, and a real game changing moment for me in my life. Like I was barely eking out a living doing client services for like political campaigns. So I was doing, you know, websites and branding for democratic campaigns and elections absolutely barely making a living. And Jim talked about how he sort of fired his clients and replaced them with his own projects and assigned sort of billable hours to them that where the projects would have to make enough money to keep the studio in business. And I just applied that mentality to what I was doing. And, you know, for me at that time, cards was just one, it was just one project, but I was like, okay, I'm going to try like eight things and give myself a couple of months here and see if anything takes off. And like, of course, Cards Against Humanity by far was the dumbest idea of all the ones that I worked on, but it was the one that took off. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're probably too humble to mention this, but people may not realize the scale of that success. It, you know, it became the biggest game on Amazon. Seems like you've shipped many, many, many boxes of the game and has have had many expansions. People are probably familiar with some of the the stunts and things that you've done to continue like breathing new life and excitement around the game. That part is I think always a, a big inspiration to a lot of people. You mentioned Jason Freed, and I was just rereading your FAQ, which is a really cool resource you put together on your website. With all of that success, you've kind of become a person, the Max Temkin people go to for advice on crowdfunding, building a game. You've got this whole side of your your career as well in, in politics. But one of the things that I've noticed with your FAQ is it's full of quotes from other people. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. It's like all, all of these inspirations, all of these, you know, the, the talk from Creative Mornings that Jim Kudal did. Where does all this stuff come from? How does it filter down to the level where it's going to make it into an FAQ? How do you find these things? I wish I had a good answer for that. I mean, I read I read a lot. I, I set aside time every day to read. I feel like I read more and more on a computer screen and less and less like books. So I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of trying to get back into the the habit of like reading books or, you know, at least a, a Kindle or something like that. I don't know. I mean, it's funny because I see a lot of think pieces about how our generation, like we like, oh, we don't read and, and we don't know how to write and it's like a lost art, like writing letters. And then I like think about our generation, like what we actually do with our time and like there's probably never been another generation of people in human history who read and wrote and more than we did and like lived in text. Like we're, it's just like all we do is like read things and read Twitter and read articles and get mad about them and have, you know, the discourse or whatever. So I think we're all just sort of swimming in this stuff. And I think it all goes to influence people. So in terms of like, where do I find stuff and put it on the FAQ? I don't know. I, I use like a notes app. So I have like bear notes for the Mac, you know, that program. Yeah. I used to use simple note and now I use bear. When I find something really cool, I copy, I make a new note, I copy and paste it into Bear. Don't you ever get something where you read a line in an article or some paragraph in a book or something and you're like, damn, like, that's great. I wish I wrote that. Or like, I, I've been waiting for someone to say that my whole life. You know, one of those things. And then I just write it down in Bear. And then uh, in Bear, um, I have different tag. I have like a tag system that I use. The tags I have are comedy, death, design, dichotomies, eco- economics, empathy, food, Internet, language, philosophy, poetry, politics, space, technology, and writing. And those just are generally, those are just, I mean, I just had to pick some categories, but those are the categories I picked of like, I can sort the stuff I'm interested in into these tag clouds. You know, so then, for example, let's say I'm writing something in my FAQ about politics. I can actually click on that politics tag, and I've probably got a hundred little paragraphs I've pulled out of books or Kindle highlights or quote some articles or links to something and I'll sort of scan through it and remind myself of all the stuff in there and be like, oh, two or three of these are like a pretty good, you know, fit for that. I think dichotomies and, and death might be uh, the title of my biography or something. Uh, <laughs> what, di- what? Let me ask you, <clears throat> let me ask you about this. So I'm love, I love dichotomies. Me, yeah, me too. I mean, they, they don't hold up, I think, to like a lot of intellectual scrutiny, but it's kind of cool because I like it's like a lens through which you can look at the world and like see it in a new way of like, oh, look, it kind of sorts into A or B. So like here's one from uh, Brian Garner's um, book, Quack This Way, which was a sort of a, a conversation he had with the author David Foster Wallace. Brian Garner's a, a grammar writer. He wrote um, a Modern English, Modern American Usage, um, which is like the the usage guy that I use all the time. So he, Brian Garner said, there's a, a Poe, an Edgar Allan Poe thing, right? One out of 100 things is discussed at great length because it really is obscure. But 99 out of 100 things are obscure because they're discussed at more length than they need to be. And like, whenever I read something like that, I'm like, damn, that's pretty <laughs> clever. Like, you really can't, like, that is kind of a, an interesting way to think about a problem or think about the world. So I, I have 20 or 30 of these as just like sort of interesting um, little filters for the world. One time I was like taking a walk with the author, the um, the sci-fi and fantasy author, uh, Mary Robinette Koal, and she just dropped the coolest piece of wisdom I've ever heard in my life. And I stopped on the sidewalk and wrote this thing on my Bear app. She's, and this was another one of my favorite dichotomies. She said, fiction is people having extreme reactions to ordinary events, but genre fiction is people having ordinary reactions to extreme events. Hmm. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. She said that. 
We were just taking a walk, and she just said that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's good to take the pressure off of either of us having interesting things to say and just put that uh, <laughs> on all oh, these I can other people. Oh, I keep going. You want me to just read notes for the rest of this podcast? <laughs> no, but I, I, for me, I think going back to the top of the show, you sort of describe yourself as a designer above all else. And for me, I, I would say the same thing, even though I'm doing podcasts, running a business, doing all these different things. And probably the most powerful tool is a concept that's akin to sailing, like tacking, which, you know, you move in, if you're trying to go in a straight line, you kind of have to zigzag your way, catching the wind and basically flipping between analog and digital or flipping between two opposite ways of thinking is one of the ways that I try to figure out a problem. And that's its own kind of dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you still describe yourself a designer. I mean, my my claws are really dug into that sort of identity for myself. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go kicking and screaming for that. Although the sad truth is like, I go most days working all day and I never open, you know, InDesign or Illustrator or anything. Like I'm, you know, I'm using email and text files and Slack and things like that. Um, So that's kind of a bummer. Like I feel like by, certainly by what I do with my time, I'm not really a designer. But I do think there is like a kind of design thinking, like there's a kind of problem solving that you learn as a designer that's broadly applicable to uh, lots of different things. Like even I feel like the way that I write is as a designer, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to go into this because I think that um, Cards Against Humanity and Black Box and kind of all the projects that you've been working on have a strong component of writing and a voice. You teach your customer service people to write in a certain way. I think the Cards Against Humanity example is is particularly strong. People know the voice if they've played the game. But I, I find it fascinating that you've built that into the company at the deepest level. When you go to the website, the FAQs are written in that sort of snarky tone. How do you go about layering that into other people and like sort of agreeing on how to answer customer service email in that in that voice? Yeah, so we use a, a piece of software that's like, um, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like Apple Mail, but it's like a shared inbox. So you can actually like see everyone's mm. emails and things get assigned to people and stuff like that. Is it front? Uh, is it front? Um, yes, we use front. So it's it's largely uh, Jen Bain, who's our community uh, manager, and Maria Ranahan, who's like our sort of deputy community manager. They kind of do the the trainings and bring in our new staff and things like that. And I would say at this point, they're the kind of keepers of the Cards Against Humanity voice. Um, but so we do a lot of training with people, and then we make people use Front. And in Front, we have like tagged emails of like, here's really good examples of how to respond to this or that. So there's a lot of like learning by example you know, occasionally we'll just all sit down together and like write emails, um, like when there's a product launch or something. So we can all kind of get into the, into the groove together and we can, you know, yell out questions and discuss them. When we email people, I think this, this gets lost a lot in, in the stories of like the funny emails that we write. So when we do a customer service email, the first obligation is to help the customer. So what I, this is, this is something that I will always, you know, kind of, kind of enforce at the company. Like basically the order of operations is first you have to, when a customer emails you with a problem, first you have to acknowledge the problem. Like that's a threshold. Before they'll read a word of what you say, you have to just acknowledge that that you're going to dignify that they're feeling upset. They feel powerless. They feel angry. And they will not read a word of what you have to say. They certainly won't think it's funny or clever unless you just acknowledge that they have an issue. So let's say the customer writes back and say, I ordered three things, but I only got two. The first line of your email better be, I am I am sorry that you only got two of the three items. You know, you, you have to acknowledge it. Just repeat back what they said. 
Then the second thing is apologize. And I, another thing I'll tell people is like, pretty much just always apologize. Like, I think there's this idea in customer service of like, oh, like don't admit like a legal liability by like apologizing them. But like, so like who fucking cares? Like it's, what does it cost? It doesn't cost you anything to apologize. Like it, there's not going to be a lawsuit. So just, just say you're sorry. Even if it's, even if it's the customer's fault, which it is 90% of the time. And they're, you know, fat fingers didn't add the right items to the cart or whatever. Just say you're sorry. It's free. It doesn't cost anything to just say, Hey, I'm really sorry. You didn't get the, all the things you were expecting. It it's completely harmless. I don't understand why everyone doesn't just do that. <laughs> so just just acknowledge the issue, yeah. apologize for it, and then you have to fix the issue. So like you know, rec- acknowledge the issue, apologize, fix it, like offer a solution, and then the last thing as a bonus can be then you've earned the right to be funny or clever. So like a PS or something at the end. And, you know, we've certainly had our cases of like, we have a new customer service person come on and they get really eager and they write some, you know, voicey cards against humanity email where they're like, Hey buddy, go fuck yourself. But they don't really earn that by acknowledging the issue, Mm. apologizing and fixing it. And it, you know, listen, it blows up in your face. Like no one wants that. So that's the first thing is like, we actually do do good customer service. And then the joke is like the last bonus step at the end. But just in terms of the, how do we teach the voice and how do we get that last step? One thing I know Jen will say to people is it's a lot like the Colbert rapport. So there's like there's Cards Against Humanity, the 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 actual company, like, you know, me and Jen and the real people. And then there's this character we do, which is the Cards Against Humanity voice. You know how Stephen Colbert like played the character of Stephen Colbert. Mm-hmm. And as the customer service person, you have to be comfortable and fluid of putting on the mask for that character and taking it off at the right times. And our customers and the public in general are pretty adept at that. They, they, they understand more than you might expect the idea of playing a role and taking it on and, and, and off, right? So it doesn't break the character to apologize for something and make it right. Um, and then people do understand at the end of the email if you then sort of put the mask back on and say something, say something you know, funny to them or whatever. There is something, though, and I think in design, you sort of want to make something intuitive. And you're describing that, I think, even just in the way that you're answering these emails, you're answering the question. But I've noticed that with some of the stuff you create, you maybe add just like a level, a a barrier to entry, just a step that people need to take to understand what you're trying to do. With Black Box, for example, and I'd like to delve a little bit into that, when you come to the Black Box website, the first thing you see is this like pixelated Mega Man-esque Rube Goldberg GIF animation that takes up the entire screen. I- I'm not sure what the drop-off is at that point, but I'm pretty sure a-, a-, a percentage of people are just like, oh, this is a website where you see a cool animation. And then if you scroll down, you understand this is a, you know, a shipping company that's doing this very serious like logistical thing, uh, helping people with their fulfillment. You know, most designers would say you got to put your important information above the fold. You clearly haven't done that. Why? Well, <clears throat> let me give you the just the design answer to that, and then I don't know. And then we could. I do have some thoughts about the idea of like that that things have you know whatever thorns on it or whatever, or there's some barrier to entry. That's an interesting. Love to talk about that, but uh, just in terms of the design there or the design thinking there. So uh, I think like recent graduate from design school thinking is you learn a bunch of rules of like, oh, your content has to be above the fold or whatever. You know, or you've read a couple books about UX and you're like, oh, here's the rules that we need to follow. And sort of like, it's easy to pick apart anything that doesn't conform to those rules. And, you know, it's easy to say that good design is anything that conforms to those rules. 
But I would just say the difference between like design and art, you know, art is about sort of self-expression and communicating something, you know, personal to the viewer. But to me, design is just, it's purely like construction tools. It's just a set of tools for solving problems in the world. And a lot of times the problem that design is solving is like how to quickly communicate your values and tell what you're about and get people interested and make them feel a certain way. And those sort of hard and fast UX rules of like put your headline, you know, the first thing on the page above the fold, that's not necessarily, that's not the only tool in your bag. Like I think designers should be more rangy than that. There's so many tools that get overlooked and so many different things that get overlooked. Like I, I love contrast. I think contrast is really surprising and really interesting to people. Like I don't love when, you know, like when everything matches and everything is as expected, like contrast is super interesting. You know, when, when look at like a great movie trailer, right? They don't just play like the obvious emotional cues of music. They play contrasting music that makes it more provocative and you really feel yourself just getting sucked into the screen. So I don't know, like, what can I say about that, that animation? I think, I think that was somewhat, somewhat my idea at least was like putting that big picture. I was like, I don't know. I just want people to be curious and I, you know, nothing is more boring than a shipping company and nothing is more like makes your eyes glaze over. When you go to like, you know, AWS or not, or um, sorry, FBA or any of these, you know, any of our sort of competitors of shipping companies, like, what are you going to see? Like, you'll see a big picture of the world with like packages all over it. And you're going to see like a rate table and stuff like that. And it's, it's not like we don't need to provide that information to people. But I think like if you're shopping for places and, you know, we're the third website that you look at for shipping, like it, it would be nice to give people some contrast and draw them in and just show them that we're, we're thinking about it differently. It's one thing to say on your page, like, oh, we think a little differently about shipping. You know what I mean? But it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> better to show than to tell. Well, listen, we're probably going to redo that website this year. And like, you know, everyone, lots of different opinions about it on the, in the company. But like, to me, it's like, and, and that's the biggest one, right? Is like, oh, our name's not on it. Like, people can't see what we do. But to me, it's like, don't people know how to scroll down a website? Like, who who is the... Who's the customer we're imagining that comes to this website? And they're like, oh, there's no content here. Like, what what would I do? Do I go sideways or up? Like, you know, like what? Like, I don't know. I feel like people are pretty fluent. Like, if you're making some sort of Kickstarter project that needs to be shipped, like, you probably understand the convention that to get more information on a website, you scroll down. I mean, that's pretty common. Well, it's a theme. And in your FAQ, you have this, people ask about, you know, tips for, for Kickstarter. And one of the ones that I wrote down was, don't offer stretch goals, commit to an artistic vision and deliver on that. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at here. Yeah, I just think like, or, or another way, I think I might also have that quote in my FAQ that I, I like, I quote, I quote this all the time, but it's from, from WeWork by uh, you know, our friends at Basecamp. And they have this whole thing about how great companies have like a point of view. And, you know, having a point of view makes decisions easy because there's a point of view and you know what's right and what's wrong and you know having listen like if you have a strong point of view some people might get mad at you or call you elitist or or make fun of you or whatever but if no one's mad at you you're probably not that interesting anyway so what's black box and why did you set out to build it yeah well do you want the like compact like marketing answer or like the messy real world story i never know what to what the to real one the real the, go, the more messy yeah. story so, okay, so Black Box is a shipping company, right? We, we ship stuff for independent artists. And the backstory on it is uh, probably five years ago, maybe, maybe more, honestly, but let's just say about five years ago, we started building all these, you know, so we built Cards Against Humanity on, on FBA, on Amazon's fulfillment service. And FBA is, as anyone who uses it knows, it has lots and lots of problems. 
So we were getting, there was like, we were getting buried by like counterfeits and we would call Amazon and we would say, Hey, could you take these counterfeits off? Or could you, how about not accepting counterfeit goods into your warehouse? And they would say, well, we have no way to know if some Chinese company sending us cards against humanity is real or not. And we'd be like, what are you talking about? It's our product. We're the only ones who can send it to you. And they'd be like, well, we have no way to verify that. So we were just like steaming mad at Amazon and it was bad. It was like hurting our business that we were getting killed by these, these counterfeits. And the other thing is like FBA prices go. Have you ever sold anything on FBA? Uh, no, we actually, in our old company, we sold uh, products directly to Amazon. We had the, a wholesale relationship with them. Uh, that might be that might be where we what we do in the future. But at the moment, we like. Uh, FBA. I do not recommend it. Yes, yeah, that there's a catch with <laughs> everything with Amazon's got a fucking catch to it. But anyway, with FBA, like the rates kept going up, and we kept having these issues, and you know, just like awful, awful. I mean, man, talk about the boot having no quarrel with the ant. Like, damn, if you've ever had to be on customer service with Amazon, I mean, may God have mercy on your soul. But uh, so we were like, we really need a, you know, we don't want to go out of business if the relationship with Amazon sours. And at one point we were in like litigation with them. We had to like, I uh, hope I'm allowed to say this. We had to like sue them in order to have like counterfeits taken off of our page. And so we, and wow. that whole time we were like, our entire livelihood and all of our employees and, you know, the building that we're paying rent on, like it all depends on this Sale, selling stuff on Amazon, this one sales channel. So we were like, it would be really nice if we had like a, in case of emergency, break glass place to sell our stuff. And we kind of looked at all the options and there wasn't anything that we really liked. You know, we we looked at Shopify and we've used Shopify. We had like, for complicated reasons, we were selling some like international items of special available internationally only on Shopify. But I had many drawbacks, like the checkout experience on Shopify is pretty rough. And so um, we were just like, okay, we want to build all these tools for ourselves. And we sort of sat down at a whiteboard and, you know, started making charts of all the stuff we would have to build and all the features it would have to have. And at some point we were like, man, it would make a lot more sense if other people, if we made these tools for other people instead of just cards. And then we were also able to sort of like apply our expertise and, you know, the, all the, our customer service team and all the stuff that we were good at and into helping other people. So it just sort of evolved as like, this, this, these tools that we needed to build for Cards Against Humanity. And then, you know, as we were building them and hiring people and making all this stuff, we were like, well, this is like more or less kind of a startup anyway, sort of making this like service to Cards Against Humanity. So we, you know, so it just makes sense to me that we would spin it off and make it work for other people. So who uses Black Box these days? So predominantly it's like independent artists like Cards Against Humanity. So people who do, you know, what we're trying to do right now is just like be dominant on Kickstarter. Like we want to be the go-to answer for how you ship a Kickstarter project. And it's tough because a lot of Kickstarter, you know, Kickstarter is like, you know, most projects have like, are going to have like under 100 backers, right? I'm just making, I'm pulling this out of my ass. I don't actually know if that's true, but a lot of projects have a small number of backers and like 1% of projects have like 10,000 or more backers. And we make all of our money and we do our best work with those projects that have like 10,000 or more backers, right? So like Exploding Kittens, we're, we're friends with the creator of Exploding Kittens, Alon Lee. And when he started working on that project, Alon called us and was like, hey, I'm making this game with the oatmeal. Would you ship it? And we were like, you know, at that point, Black Box wasn't really done. We were sort of very, it was very much like a, a beta and it required a lot of like people you know, and doing data entry and things like that. Like it really wasn't well automated. I was like, would you ship our game? And we were like, yeah, how many people is it going to be? We'll ship your little game. That'll be fine. And of course that went on to be the most backed Kickstarter project in history. And, you know, we were sort of (laughs) just sweating, just watching the backer count go up and up and up. But 
so that was it wound up being a good moment for us because we really it, we really had to scramble and uh, we we got it done we we shipped it out everyone got their products and we also arranged we were able to use sort of historical shipping data that we had accumulated from doing large cards projects so Alan had done this thing where he promised everyone a surprise, a really cool surprise that they would spend some of the extra money from Exploding Kittens on because they so smashed their fundraising goal. So what they did was this box with a sound chip in it that would meow when you opened it. And then Alan decided he didn't, he wanted everyone to get their game on the same day because he didn't want some people to get it early and that the meow surprise would leak out mm. on like Twitter and Instagram and ruin the surprise. We were able to use sort of historical shipping data to stagger the shipments so that we sent out the largest Kickstarter project ever Wow! and uh, staggered it such that it arrived for almost all of the backers on the same exact day so that they all got the surprise of the, the meowing box. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it was cool. So that was a good, that was like a good moment for us of like, okay, we're on a, we're on a good path here and, and the thing we're building is useful and like we can, we can pull it together. So now we're just sort of in that, that this is the thing I want to talk to you about, but we're just sort of in that like slog of a startup of we're in, I don't know, we're like middle age or something like that, where it's like, you know, we, we know, we sort of like know what we're doing. Like we understand our niche and we understand the services that we're offering to people, but we just need to like scale up and, and be able to take on more customers and, you know, grow our company and retain talent and like all those good, like that's not what you dream of doing when you start a, a company. Right. But it's like occupies a huge amount of your time. But practically, people send stuff to your warehouses and then you ship it out for them. But you also have um, an add to cart like plugin. You can actually sell things through Black Box as well, which is kind of unique. Yeah, so that's the thing that we built for cards that that we we wanted to share with everyone was like we we needed a shopping cart for Cards Against Humanity, and we felt like most of the shopping carts on the market were pretty bad and. I don't know. They were like hard to use. They asked you like to fill out form fields that we knew you didn't actually need to fill out. The one that always kills me is like, if you type in your zip code, why do you, why why do sites also right. make you type in your city? Like it, just, I know it's just one thing. and and state and state. I know it's just yeah. one little thing, but like that's my time. Like don't don't make me fill out form fields I don't need to fill out. Like I know that you could look up the zip code if you cared enough to to add that feature in. So I don't know. So that was just the kind of thing that we were that we wanted was like a like a really well thought through like kind of delightful, fun to use, funny checkout form and. Yeah, so that was what we made for cards, and now it's available to everyone else. So, like, basically, you know, you ship your stuff to our our warehouses. Our warehouses send it out for you, and then we give you this little shopping cart that's like kind of like a YouTube embed code, and you can paste it on your own website and turn any website, you know, whatever website you have for your game or your product or book or whatever, into the into the cart. Yeah. So when we make packaging at Lumi, we send it to warehouses like yours, and people have asked us, "Will you ever do fulfillment?" And I have said. <laughs> This is my personal opinion. Maybe it will change in the future, but never ever because it's such an intense, it's so hard. And maybe the, the people that you work with are are slightly different than the people we work with, but they're so focused on you know squeezing out every cent out of everything that it's really hard to run a profitable business doing fulfillment, uh, I, I find. I mean, from the outside, I've never tried to do it. Yeah, the the sort of unfair advantage that we have of getting of getting into fulfillment is that we already had Cards Against Humanity, which is a big company that ships a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it meant that we already could get bulk pricing. We could go into the best, biggest warehouses, and they would take us seriously. We would get bulk pricing at like FedEx and USPS and things like that, like postage, you know, boxes, like all that kind of stuff. Like I can't say it's fair, but if you're big, it's easy to get bigger, right? That's true. 
So when you're working with, obviously not every Kickstarter campaign is as big as Exploding Kittens. You're, you're talking about you know most of them being maybe 100 backers or something like that. That's got to be a, a pretty different kind of challenge. Yeah, but they benefit. But it's the same company, right? They they're get the same rates as Cards Against Humanity because they're ship, it's all our shipping company. Sure, but from your perspective as a customer service, it, it's got to be... Oh, yeah, we don't make any money. <laughs> yeah, we don't make any money on those people. I think we probably lose money. If you count all of the customer service hours and things and all of the setup and everything, I'm sure we lose money on those. So I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Like We'll have to get better at doing those because that's where, where most people are, but... We only make money on on larger projects where there's like volume. Yeah, I mean the same is probably true of Lumi, right? Like pretty much. You guys don't make you guys don't make a big profit if you make like twenty boxes for someone. <laughs> yeah, we well we don't make twenty boxes at all because uh, the just the printing processes that we use are. I mean, it would basically cost you the same to to make twenty as it would to make a thousand. There there are some really right. cool technologies that have come out in in recent times to print digitally, but we don't offer that yet. Yeah, so it's same, you know, I don't know, same same deal. So you're in this phase, you're trying to you're trying to grow it like uh, you know, little by little. The team has expanded quite a bit. What does the team look like today? How do you how do you do what you do? Black Box and Cards are, you know, obviously like sister companies, like we share an office, our desks are all mixed up together. Um, there's some people who work on both. So Jen is the head of customer service for Black Box and the community manager for cards. So it's not like a neat, a, the neatest division of like, you know, these people work on this, these people work on that. I would guess that there's probably about 20 people in total working on Black Box and about maybe a dozen people working on cards. So, you know, we're, 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 we're about the same size. I'd say we're, we're, we're about the same size as Lumi. And uh, I don't know, like, what, what are the big issues? T- you know, talent retention, like just finding, finding great people that, that there's so many skills of working in a company like this, right? There's like hard skills of like being an expert in the thing that you're doing, whether it's like understanding how like warehouses work or being, you know, a great developer. And then there's like soft skills of like, you know, it's hard to sit down at a table of people who all need different things and arrive at like a common creative vision and everyone feels great at the end of the meeting. Like that's, that's hard. I'm not good at that. (laughs) Yeah. So you were, you were alluding to the fact that, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're, running into similar scaling issues before we started recording you're just saying that you don't you don't know exactly everything that's happening at black box anymore oh yeah yeah i don't know everything that happens in that building every day and you know like i said like i don't most days i like don't open you know illustrator and design or, or photoshop and so like i go home, like i i know i'm working hard like i work all day and i'm tired at the end of the day and i i'm trying really hard but like I couldn't tell you what I do. Like, I don't know what I do all day. I answer emails and I have meetings with people. I don't know. I feel it feels kind of fraudulent, honestly. <laughs> and then, and then the other thing is like a, a very common complaint or comment we get from our employees is they're like, I don't know everything that's happening at the company anymore. And I don't, you know, like I don't know everyone who works here. I don't know everything that they do. I don't know every initiative that we're doing. And like, I feel for them, but also like, I don't, I don't know every initiative, you know, I don't know all of that information and it's my company. So I feel like that's just the, what happens when you get to be a, a larger organization. I'm going to go back to, I remember uh, very specifically the first time we met. And I think that this is, I, I remember it because it, it was a, a meaningful moment in my life. And <laughs> you probably don't remember it at all. It was uh, at XOXO. I think it was the first year um, XOXO, the, conference, which is really about a lot of the things that you talk about and, and that you're trying to help with Black Box, which is independent creators making things and selling them on the internet. Were you a speaker the first year? Was that the... 
Uh, I was a speaker the second year at XOXO. So I forget if it was the first or second. People should go back. That was great. That was probably 2012 or 13. And I met you at Zell's, which is like a coffee shop breakfast place that's right next oh, to Oh man, this I place. remember I I do remember that we were waiting in line at Zell's for a really long time <laughs> and we we just wound up hanging out together. Yeah, well, we- that was real I do remember that. Was that really the first? Was that really the I first think time we so, met? So, because though? I think you know, just the way that these conferences go, people are like, "I'm getting breakfast over here," and we were waiting in line forever. It was really busy, and it was coming up. Do you remember they brought out they brought out hot scones for yeah, us? Well, to they're eat amazing. Wine? I mean, those are the best scones. I've never been in Portland and not had breakfast at Zell's. I love that place. But we were running up against like the first speaker was going to start any second um and you had like generously bought breakfast for a bunch of people who were there we were so we decided to like take it to go and this is i remember it in my brain as the time i invented the sandwich but it's like i became the earl of sandwich in that moment we were (laughs) everyone had left they had all gone back to the main conference hall uh because things were about to get started and we were just going to get the food and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like some breakfast item. I was like, can you put this in a bread form? Like, can you put, <laughs> make it portable for me? And you had just like ordered this really complicated thing and just said, oh, yeah, can I get another one of those? <laughs> and it, it just, for me in my brain. It, Wait, what was it? What were we eating? We were, it, it was like was it eggs like- or something like that. And But they didn't have like a breakfast sandwich thing. So we like fashioned up a to-go breakfast out of the, whatever like, they uh, had. Like Apollo, like Apollo 13. Like we only had exactly. the, the, you know, the, the, the manual and the tubing and we built, we had to connect the, the square conduit to the circle conduit. They, they really did all the work <laughs> accommodating our <laughs> request. But that's the, that's the, the moment that, uh, I feel like uh, I really met you for the first time. And then, um, you know, at the time, Lumia was a very different company. We were making fabric dyes and selling those, uh, you know, through Kickstarter and different things. And I think that's, we we felt the same kind of pains, which now, you know, however many years later, six years later, we're both doing logistical services for people who ran into those kinds of problems, scratching our own itch. Listen, it's it's broadly the story of I think of a lot of tech and Silicon Valley and stuff, which is in those days in 2012 and 2013, it seemed like the opportunity and the magic was in well at least for me it seemed like what you would hear in the media and like what everyone was playing with was like code and tech and computers and things like that, and that was sort of where all the magic was. And then you know cut to whatever five six years later. And it turns out a lot of what was really going on behind the scenes there was like infrastructure. So like I always like to use the example of Uber when I think about this. So like, you know, back then Uber was like just getting off the ground and it was this magical service. And I think a lot of people saw that what was at the heart of Uber was like code was like, oh, they took like the private car service and they turned it into code. And it was like they put it on phones and they had sort of like a technological change. But now looking back on it, I can see that it wasn't code that was the special thing that made Uber work, that it was it was an it was a infrastructure and socioeconomic thing that made Uber work. Like Uber is a company that's like an arbitrage on the wealth gap and on inequality. Uber is a company that can only exist if you have a society of people who need to drive and a society of people who need to be driven. No one saw that at the time. Everyone was like, oh, it's the app. 
but of course it wasn't the app. It was the, it was the new emerging class of people who needed to be driven. And then the disposable labor force of people who were willing to do that work without any sort of like employment contract or anything. So uh, to me, there's just like, we're kind of a microcosm of that story of we were both interested in these sort of like new technologies and consumer facing stuff. And then you keep, you know, I think that's also just part of a, being a designer is like you keep peeling back and, and peeling back and peeling back and looking what's there. And at, at the, the core, it's like an infrastructure problem. So I think now we're both trying to ser- serve these like infrastructure needs that people have. And it's like, I would love to do more expensive tech stuff, but it's like, you know, it's hard to offer like tech services to Kickstarter people if they, don't have a shipping solution, so that's what they need. My my friend, my friend Tanner um, is the founder of the Chicago Design Museum, and they have this show up right now that's um, called the Great Ideas of Western Man, and it's this poster series that's like a reboot of a 1960s poster series with the same name. And I've always, I actually own one of these posters, and I've it's um, it's an amazing um, this amazing design that I've like had for almost my whole life. And I love this thing. And I didn't realize until recently that that whole campaign, The Great Ideas of Western Man and this poster series made by all of these famous designers, it was an ad campaign for a box company called the CCA, the Container Corporation of America, based pretty much right in my neighborhood here in Chicago. And now they're long gone. But like that was a problem that existed in the early part of the 1900s and it still exists today. It's like an infrastructure problem. Like people need boxes. As long as there's shipping, people need boxes. And, you know, at the at the heart of Kickstarter is amazing. Like it's given me a career and it's helped me put all this great stuff into the world and it's responsible for so many of my friends like flourishing and getting great opportunities but at its heart there's this infrastructure problem of like it's all well and good to do a kickstarter but shipping stuff to people sucks like it's hard yeah and you know one thing that we made this big change to Lumi a couple months ago where we were offering um both blank packaging and printed packaging. And those were basically completely different business models. One was like off the shelf stuff, you know, similar to Uline. Um, and one was, you know, basically on demand manufactured goods. We decided to shut down the the blank side of things because it was just pulling us in two very different directions as a business. Uh, and, and the types of transactions that we were doing in each case were like radically different. We felt we weren't able to do the blank stuff as well as we wanted to. So maybe we'll come back to it later. But it was a really hard thing as a company because those were the products that our, our smallest customers were using uh, because those are the ones that, you know, that came in the lowest volume uh, minimums. Um, and, I, and I wonder if that's something that for Black Box you're ever going to need to figure out. Like, do you continue doing those, those small, like, unprofitable ones because it's just part of your mission as a company or is it something where you know eventually you're you're you need more bigger uh, projects like the the oatmeal and the uh, exploding kittens to keep the business going well it's gonna it's gonna have to be both um we will have to we'll, we're gonna have to make make our, make it work for the big clients because that's where the money is but also like there's no like i don't want to do it if we can't work if we can't help people ship their first kickstarter project i, I have no interest in it the other thing I'll say is like I do think that that's how you get an exploding kittens is you have not everyone most people don't make exploding kittens as their first game. Most people don't make like cards against humanity as their first game, right? Yeah. Like I I certainly I certainly didn't. So like you will earn that trust with people by shipping their small products and then when they have a huge hit and they turn something into an exploding kittens we'll we'll be there for them and they'll have the relationship with us. I selfishly asked uh, before we started recording if you had any questions for me because 
I would never ask this of any other guest, really, or maybe I, oh, maybe well, I would. I do. I have so but I, I, yeah, I have so many questions for you. Do you deal with the same problem I do of like that you like go through your day and you like don't really open Illustrator and you're like, man, what the fuck did I do all day? And how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, well, so two things. One is that I still code on the website. I still uh, design pages, which is probably a, a problem at this point. It's it's not helping because it's such a bottleneck. Um, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And I really ought to move that to just my own personal projects, coding and designing for those things. Um, so I, I still get to touch a little bit of that stuff. I, I don't spend as much time in you know, Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign as I would like. But I've, I think over the past few years, gotten comfortable with empowering other people and just like getting as much enjoyment out of seeing them grow and like build stuff that loosely like fits what I'm looking for uh, as I do creating it myself. Yeah. So in, in um, there's another thing in rework I think all about a lot, which is they, Jason uh, writes um, uh, just to consider the ideal size of your company. Like most companies shoot past their ideal size and they never stop to ask, is this the ideal size of our company? They're just, their only imperative is just to, to grow. Mm. So now we're both up to having about, you know, 30 person companies. Do you feel like, have you put any thought into what the ideal size of your company is? Are you past it? Are you, are you not there yet? I don't think about it that way. Uh, I think we're, we're definitely not there yet. And it's not, ideal is a weird term because I think that um, it's ideal in what way, you know, I kind of feel like the ideal size is probably 12 people because you, with 12 people, you can totally understand everything that everybody's doing and you can have someone who's like generally specialized in a certain theme and let them do that thing really well. But my personal you know, aspiration with, with Lumi is that we make really, really deep change on a sustainability level of the entire like packaging supply chain. And I feel like in order to achieve that, we need to build up the volume that allows us to like have that impact at a like global scale. Like I really want us to be able to make a dent in that. And so that's not going to happen with 12 people. So it's a bit of a tension between those two things. Do you think it's getting um, easier or harder for people to like start a new project and and put it online and and I don't even want to say like make a living but like make some money on it? Let's say this is a great theme. I want to ask you the same question. I think it's getting it's easier to get started, but it's harder to succeed because because it makes it so easy. It's like a dichotomy. I don't know how to phrase this in a like perfectly uh, encapsulated writerly way, but because it's so easy, more people can do it. And because more people can do it, it makes it harder to actually thrive. Yeah, I, th- I would also agree that there's like some contraction right now. Like it, it is, it actually is a little bit harder. Like I think if you look at like Kickstarter trends and things like that, there are just like fewer big successful projects on Kickstarter with the exception of board games. Board games are doing quite well on Kickstarter. But uh, yeah, I think for me, it has to do with a couple of things. I think again, like I'm always going to look at the, a sort of materialist answer. So for me, like, I think that there's more wealth stratification now than there was, you know, let's say five or 10 years ago. And it's, uh, you know, probably I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not going to get much better under the Trump administration and uh, Republican control of all three branches of our government. And I think what that means is like, 
you know, it turned like I, I hope this isn't shocking to anyone, but the biggest factor for like starting a successful business isn't isn't you know having a, a, a great idea or being a great coder or anything like that. It's just like basically, do you have money going into it or not? Um, like if you have a safety net and you have a money, like those people are more uh, able to take risks. They're more socially connected. They have more access to investors. Like you know, I don't know, a million, a million, million, million different factors. Um, you know, they're putting less at risk, like their healthcare and their housing and things like that when they start a business. So I think what you're seeing is like an increasingly large class of people that cannot materially afford the risk of starting a business and more. And then among the sort of like idle rich class that it used to be maybe more cool to see them like do a startup and take a bunch of VC money. I think people are starting to wise up and some of that easy money is starting to, to dry up a little bit, which is probably for the better. Yeah, and and with Kickstarter when you know, you can't be the first Kickstarter campaign anymore. You know, when we were starting and doing stuff in 2012 or whatever, we had the benefit of being early to the platform getting a lot of eyeballs because that thing was new. And I hate to think that there are no big new platforms like that that are you know, I'm sure there's going to be a, a next big thing that allows people to be first and do something new and be an example for others to follow, but it doesn't feel like there's been another big platform like that in a while. Yeah. I don't know if it was that great to be on Kickstarter in the beginning. Cause like cards was one of the very early games on Kickstarter, not the first, but we were, we were in, we were, the, I think at the time we, we became one of the highest funded games on Kickstarter. I didn't really see that as a big advantage. In fact, I saw it as a burden because we had to spend most of our Kickstarter project explaining what Kickstarter was, right? We were like, why are we asking you for your money? But there's no game yet. So yeah, I guess it's easier for people now. We talked a little bit about that with the most recent episode with uh, Studio Neat, and and that makes it a lot easier. And maybe that's why games still work really well there. And I think games are a special special category because there's a certain type of person you can never. Games are like movies, or you know, you can never have too many games. I mean, maybe you can, but there are certain other types of products where. You know, once you've got a coffee maker, you don't need another coffee maker or you don't need another wallet or you don't need another whatever it is. So games feel like an area that you can keep uh, innovating on. Well, it's also it's also I mean, again, I mean, not to not to, uh, you know, I look like the, the, there's also just a material difference of like um, it, the need is very, very clearly understood for a game of like, OK, I've made this thing. It's fun. I've play tested it and I need money to put it into production. Like it's much harder to judge that for a wallet, right? Like if it's that great of a wallet you can kind of judge for yourself by like looking at pictures of it i, I don't know so you don't think it it hasn't hurt anything that there's so many successful games on kickstarter it, what's it hasn't made it any harder it's made it easier then no because on the con on because on the contrary there's more games i think board games are the biggest category in kickstarter now yeah. there's more successful games on kickstarter than at any point in history so if it were the case that having a lot of successful games made it harder for games to succeed, you would see the games category contracting. But instead, it's like I said, I think it's it's the fastest growing, like biggest category in Kickstarter. It's it's huge. So your main argument for why it's getting harder to get off the ground is is the wealth stratification. I think that's a big piece of it, and and just the the the. Um, a lot of the mythologies that people were told about starting companies and, you know, whatever, starting up a, a business or whatever, five years ago, you know, we, we both saw a lot of these talks of people were like, oh, jump off a cliff and build a parachute on the way down or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of that stuff was just sort of mythology. Like it was like, a, it was basically a rich 
person giving advice to people they didn't know based on their own sort of their own personal story of like, you know, oh yeah, all I had was a trust run for my parents and, you know, infinite, infinite fallback options and a network of rich people to help me. And that was all I had going into it. I'm going to switch topics radically. You've, you've, um, designed and helped create games like Secret Hitler. And before that you made a version of Werewolf, which is uh, another secret identity game, probably similar to Mafia. People have might have played that one too. We've played a lot of those at Lumi uh, among colleagues. I have to say, I don't think it's a very good team building exercise because it really trains you <laughs> to not trust anyone and you start to know who's really good at lying. And so I'm actually sort of regretting how much we played that in some ways, <laughs> but, but it's a really fun category of games. What got you into those? I, I I learned about them from you. It seems like they had their own like underground yeah. cult, uh, but now they've become a big thing, and, and a lot of people have played them. Well, I just think they have a lot of things. I think there's a lot going for these sort of hidden, you know, social deduction or hidden identity games. So the first thing is they're infinitely replayable, and if you play with the same group of people, they get better, not worse, because you start to pick up on people's, you know, it's like poker, right? You pick up on people's tells. There's a reason people play poker with their poker buddies for their whole life, because, like, the game gets richer the more you play, and I think the same is true of these sort of social deduction games. Um, I think that when there is innovation in the game, when someone develops a new technology or a new strategy, and then there's, like, play and counterplay, and there's a metagame that evolves... It's thrilling. Like, it's so thrilling when people uh, come up with sort of like new play innovations. And it just also has one of my favorite characteristics of games in general, which is this, which is this idea of like an emergent narrative. So, <clears throat> you know, some games have a narrative built into them. So, like, if you think of like a AAA video game where, you know, like, uh, like Last of Us or something like that, you're playing a story that was written by a team of writers and you can make some decisions. Or like, let me use Mass Effect as an example. You know that game? Yeah. So, so Mass Effect is like a sci-fi shooter, and your character can do basically. There's points in the game where you can choose to do an, a good thing or an evil thing, and then that gives you choosing those options gives you a good points or evil points, and then that later affects like um, what possibilities are open to you. So, you know, there's some missions that you can't do if you're too evil, and there's like some guys that won't join your squad if you're too good. You know what I mean? So it, it kind of affects your play style. So I would say that's like, uh, the, the, I like the Mass Effect games. This is not a knock on them. I think they're like brilliantly written sci-fi and it, I like the choose your own adventure nature of it. But there's not really any part of the narrative of Mass Effect that's like emergent. Like it is written, right? So I think the effect of most games in that genre, especially in tabletop where there's sort of a story that you're enacting, is that it turns into a kind of a shitty book. That it's like a it's like a worse version of like watching a season of TV or a worse version of reading a book. So what it, what really gets me going is like emergent narrative where it's like the gameplay that you do and the decisions you make in gameplay they create their own narrative independent of anything that anyone wrote. So the ultimate example in video games to me is this game called Spelunky. Do you know that game? I've never played it, but I, I'm familiar. Spelunky's all you should get into it. It's it's awesome. So it's a procedurally generated platformer so you're jumping around it's a platformer you're you have this little explorer and you're in a cave and you're trying to get treasure and there's four worlds and it's a roguelike so when you die you die and you just start over at the beginning and you don't get accumulate any you know powers between games or anything and every time you play the map is different and there is no story in Splunky. you know you're not conversing with characters there's no story it's just what you do in the game like do you 
do you take this path or that path? Do you like jump on this bat or do you run away from him? Do you pick up this item or that item? But at the end of a run of Splunky, you have such a rich story. Like I could sit down and tell you a, a, a true story with a beginning, a middle and an end and dramatic tension and great moments. It's like so richly narrative. And it was nothing that the creator of the game, Derek, you wrote into the game. It's just an emergent you couldn't even point to where the story is in the game, right? It somewhere exists somewhere in the space in between the player and the controls and the game and the systems. Like, I don't even know where the story is in there, but it, it's there in a really rich way. And to me, these hidden identity games or social deduction games, like, they have such good emergent narratives. Like, after a game of Secret Hitler, not in a way that we scripted or wrote into the game, people can go into another room and, like, tell their friend a story of what happened in their game of Secret Hitler, how it felt you know, beginning, middle, end, dramatic tension, the whole nine yards, and you get these really rich stories out of it. And that 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 just kills me. I think that's so cool. What are other types of games, categories of games that offer that? It, I guess anything where you just sort of set up a set of rules and then people can take it in whatever direction they want. Yeah, well, I would say, so So in video games, I think you've got like the, the sort of roguelike genre, or some people call it the roguelike-like genre, the sort of light roguelike. So like, you know, one I'm playing a lot right now is called Slay the Spire. It's pretty cool. It's like a deck building, um, dungeon crawling, crawly roguelike thing. You know, FTL, I feel like has, has really rich narratives. And then in tabletop, um, I really like folk games. So things like, um, Exquisite Corpse and, and Pictionary Telephone and things like that. Just like sort of free pen and paper games that are taught by oral tradition, I guess would define a folk game. Um, I think those have, have pretty incredible stories and, um, you know, role-playing games like, you know, D and D and Pathfinder and, um, you know, Luke Crane makes these sort of amazing independent, um, RPG games. He has this, uh, Viking, uh, LARP that he's been running at events and, uh, did a Kickstarter for that's, that is pretty mind blowing for the people who have had a chance to experience it. So, I, so I don't know. I just think that's that, that kind of stuff is more what, what turns me on than like, maybe like a huge, you know, a huge Euro game with a more prescribed way to play and a prescribed story. Do you find that any of that stuff that, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about emergent gameplay, how does that funnel back into what you're doing at black box for, for instance? Um, well, I, I would say there's a parallel to how I think about branding. So, you know, if you hear people talk about branding, they'll often talk about the logo or the slogan or the colors or something like that. But I actually would define a brand as, kind of like the the story in a in a game the way that it emerges in between the system and the player a brand is the accumulated effect of all of the experiences and the emotions that a person has with a with a company or a product and you don't always get to choose what your brand is right if you have an amazing logo but you have horrible customer service and you make the person feel really powerless and and awful that's your brand right you're the brand with a great logo that made the person feel completely emotionally defeated. And so I think people, I think a lot of companies and designers would do well to have like a more broad understanding of what their branding is and to think bigger about the brand experience that they can provide to people and all the different ways that you can sort of show, don't tell about what your brand is about. So what you're saying is people, customers, your customers are going to create a narrative in their brain from all the experiences and touch points that they've had Right. What is the way that you can give them, you know, a collection of good experiences that build up to a good narrative? Yeah, totally. 
So like one example I would give, I mean, this is a, this is not, don't take this away as like, this is the one like hack to like have a good brand. It's just one little trick that we do. But like one thing that I think is great is like whenever we do a product or make a website, we try to hide to tons of little details in everything we do. So like if I'm working on the writing the source code for the front end of the website, I'll try and put a couple of just funny little things in the, in the, you know, name the, the variable, something funny. If we're writing an FAQ, the FAQ is going to have jokes in it. If there's packaging, the packaging is going to have jokes on it. Like everything is just a little bit weird and a little bit funny. And we always look at, like, we look at literally everything. Like if there's a barcode on the product, we're like, how do we make the barcode interesting? Like everything has a little bit of something on it to delight the customer. And I'll say about 99% of the time, people don't notice that stuff. And that's okay because 1% of the time, someone will notice it. And that is a really cool experience for them. They feel either like, oh my God, this little detail was here and I feel like it was put here just for me. And that's a great, like, I would rather spend all the time to put that in just to connect with the few people who notice it because that's that's as good of a brand experience and as positive of a thing to leave them with as, as I think anything else that you can do. And I mean, it makes it exciting for you and and the team. Yeah, right. It's fun to do. We have internal code names for all of the different platforms at Lumi and our we've got this internal ERP software we've been building for ourselves called PowerPuff. And it's a whole thing. But um, I can't tell you the number of different engineers and people that I've interviewed. And they're so excited <laughs> that we have these like silly names for different things. Because otherwise, it would just be boring. I mean, that <laughs> we would be talking about this thing that we're building all day long, and it is a boring thing. We're trying to make it because it's important, but if you can't layer in the fun stuff, you're doing something boring, and it's boring while you're doing it. For a company that's making boxes, I think of yeah. like Mailchimp is a, a company that we think a lot about because you look if you try to describe what Mailchimp does, it's a very boring thing. You know, they send emails to people. They spent they send junk email to people. Pretty much, yeah. A thing that everybody hates. <laughs> yes, but yeah. I mean, they. I'm sure some people are using it, <laughs> are getting some value as a as a customer of a, of a newsletter or or as a rece- or as a recipient. Some people enjoy what they get from Mailchimp, but even if you just look at it very practically, it's a it's a very boring thing. And so I I, I admire people who are able to layer in something that makes it exciting for the rest of the world or for yourself. So I think you guys are doing that with, with Black Box. You go to the team page. I'm looking at it right now. There's, there's so many little Easter eggs there. Everyone's yeah. got their own little animation. That took some time, but yeah. you have to set aside time for it. Yeah, that was also like, that wasn't my idea. I think that was just like, we just had someone who were like, hey, can you do the staff illustrations? And then they took it upon themselves to, to make, it, make it really delightful and cool. And I think it's fun for all of the people who are on that page to have a little thing that they can do to sort of like express themselves in terms of like coming up with a fun thing for their animation to do. So I deliberately didn't ask you most of the questions on your FAQ. You've done a bunch of other podcasts. Uh, you have your main podcast due by Friday, which I'm not sure if you would consider it uh, somewhere where people should go to for advice. But um, if people want to learn more about you, I think we'll put all those links in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd want to point people to if they want to learn more about you or get an <laughs> understanding of how to no, nobody should learn more about me. Really, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I, what's to be gained? I don't know. Go, my. I, I, I'm really. I, I've really been trying to do a good job of when people email me for advice or ask me a question. I try to like. Uh, my new thing is I'm trying to like write it down in a last. So instead of just giving someone like shooting off like a shitty email to someone, I try to really spend some time and like 
answer the shit out of their question and like do my research and write a really good answer. And then I post it up on this FAQ. So if you're interested in reading that, it's like all the accumulated responses I've given to people, you know, that I think are, are good over the years. Uh, you can go to maxessentialism.com slash FAQ. And that's where all that stuff lives. So that's probably the the most relevant to someone listening to this. And if you make something and, and uh, you want to ship it and work with real human beings, who will like answer your emails and stuff. Uh, go to uh, blackbox.cool and uh, uh, consider us for shipping. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.